Welcome to another episode of A People's Theology. I'm your host, Mason Menega. In this episode, I talk with Megan Westra. Megan is a chaplain and writer. She most recently wrote Born Again and Again, Jesus' Call to Radical Transformation. Also musically featured throughout this episode is Daniel Dietrich. Daniel is a singer-songwriter from Indiana. You can get connected with both Megan and Daniel and their work in the links in the episode description. If you're a fan of A People's Theology, it would bring me no greater joy than if you gave the podcast a five-star rating and review. Tell me what you like about the podcast. Also, if you feel so inclined, please support my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Mason Meninga. There are multiple tiers with wonderful rewards, including papers I write to even a book club. Enough of my rambling. Enjoy more inspiring and liberating theology. Today, I have Megan Westra, and Megan does lots of things in the world. I know you're a pastor for uh, at a time, and uh, I don't know what all the things you're all doing now, but one of those things you get to add to your list now is an author. Uh, you recently released a wonderful book called Born Again and Again, Jesus' Call to Radical Transformation. Uh, but, you know, there's lots of things that make you up. Uh, so I'm wondering, who is Megan Westra to Megan Westra? Oh, wow. That's a good question. Uh so I think that I would like myself to be like mostly defined by the fact that I try to be present to every moment mm. and embrace each moment and who I am in each moment as fully as possible. Uh, so right now that mostly looks like uh, supervising virtual school for my eight-year-old. And Ooh, yeah. That's a full-time yeah. job. Well, that it is, but I have another one too. So, you know, it's <laughs> welcome to 2020. Um, I work right now as a hospice chaplain. And mm. so showing up fully in those moments, which, you know, are heartbreaking, but also some mm-hmm. of the like most deeply human moments. Um, and so really feel honored to hold that sacred space with so many people. Um, and then, yeah, showing up fully to the words on the page or to whatever it is that's going on in life. We can only write good things if we can live good things. Um, and so I try to try to do that. Do you like Henry Nowen or Thomas Burton by any chance? <laughs> I love Henry Nowen. I may have close to 10 of his books on my shelf. It's possible. <laughs> I love that. I love that. So like I mentioned, you get to add the author to uh, the many things that you do. Uh you wrote your first book, uh, like I mentioned at the top of the episode. What did you learn about yourself as you were writing your very first book? Oh, my gosh. I learned that I am very bad at trying things. 
when I don't know what the outcome is going to be, mm. which I, I knew about myself generally. Like I was a very like risk avoidant child. Like I'm 32 and I still have never broken a bone. Cause I'm just like, yeah, nope, not trying that. That seems like a bad idea. And, uh, so I thought I could write a book though. Like, right. Like that was my thing was, I was like, oh yeah, I think I could try that. I think I could do it. And when you write a book, you write a first draft. And then you're essentially told very nicely and very professionally that it sucks. Um, and, and like, here's all the ways that your argument doesn't make sense. Here's all the inconsistencies. You say this particular word or these two or three particular words all the time. And that's obnoxious, right? So you're told all these things and then you're set, told, try again. And, and so I realized about myself that that try again part is really difficult for me even more so than I already knew uh and I learned that that there's more to me than I would have given myself credit to what Enneagram type are you this sounds one-ish to me I am I am a one yeah oh I was gonna say <laughs> I am a one with a with a two wing but it's a pretty pretty small wing I'm I'm, I'm like a, a solid one just very one <laughs> <laughs> That's interesting because th that that was your experience in writing a book um, because mm -hmm. I could totally imagine uh, like if you were on the opposite end there and you were the editor, like the editor job is very much a one kind of job. Like I think some oh, yeah. of the best editors are ones because of just the perfectionistic standard that you have to have as a as a editor. So it's really interesting yep. that you get a one author now having to uh, deal with a very one kind of space of a of a a role in the the writing of a book. So anyway, mm -hmm. with that said, uh, you know, I'm sure there's lots of different things that you learn kind of factually as you wrote this book. Uh, what was something you learned maybe theologically as you wrote the book that maybe you didn't know be about before? I, I mean, so much of the book is like really the encapsulation of 10 years of theological wrestling and learning. I graduated from undergrad, uh, having been a Southern Baptist for most of my life. And feeling this call to ministry, but not really knowing what that meant because uh, I'm a woman and we don't get to do that. Mm. And so, you know, when I sat down to write the book, it was like, okay, how do I really encapsulate 10 years of grappling, um, into, into a book, um, and not so much to give people answers, but to just kind of say, this is a different way to hold it. So, I think that would be the biggest, if I were to nail down, like what's the biggest theological underpinning that I learned and I learned it slowly to be clear, mm -hmm. it's that there's not like an answer, right? Like when I first started to deconstruct or shift or however you want to like phrase that, I was just looking for the new set of beliefs to plug in, right? Like, okay, let me just like rearrange the furniture and then call it good, right? I'll swap out my fundamentalist beliefs or progressive ones, and then it'll be good. Uh, you know, and slowly starting to realize that like, oh no, I don't need to rearrange the furniture. I need to build a new house. Mm. Um, and, and in that house, there's not just this one down pat answer, uh, you know, in part because I take the Bible seriously. And if we're going to say that the word of God is living and active, then like, heaven forbid we have down pat answers for everything. <laughs> mm -hmm. Right at the beginning of the book, you talk about what salvation meant to you, maybe maybe from those Southern Baptist days. Um, 
Can you talk a little bit about what that meant to you, what salvation meant to you at that time? And it also is probably the way that a lot of people around the world right now think of salvation as well. Yeah. So when I was a kid, salvation was just this like incredibly anxiety inducing proposition where I just was constantly agonizing over whether or not I was good enough or whether it stuck or whether that prayer worked or whether that thing that I just did, like whether it was like being snarky to my mom or like punching my little brother, right? Like whether that like disqualified me somehow what more could I be doing? Was I suffering enough for Jesus as a nine-year-old in rural West Virginia? Uh, You know, all of these like uh, just really anxiety inducing questions of like, how do I make sure that I'm doing enough and making myself small enough or palatable enough to somehow like appease this angry God uh, who, who is also offering free grace, apparently, but it doesn't really feel free at all. Um, so salvation was not a prospect that was like good news at all, mm-hmm. right? Like mm-hmm. the gospel was really bad mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. The inner voice of being an Enneagram One is what it was. Yeah, no, for real. I wish <laughs> I would have come across that so much earlier in my life because it's like, oh, no shit. All right. <laughs> That's a thing. <laughs> And I believed you when you said That I should trust the words in red To guide my steps through a wicked world I assumed you'd do the same So imagine my dismay When I watched you lead the sheep to So talk a little bit about how that changed. You know, I know you went to seminary. Maybe it was sometime in college or whatever. But at some point, that understanding of salvation that you had grown up with had changed. So can you talk a little bit about that journey? Yeah. So I started asking questions in college. But it was really once I got out of college, we moved to Milwaukee, Wisconsin. I started working uh, at a church. And uh, as I continued to ask questions and as I continued to like throw uh, things against the wall to see what would stick instead of like shutting those questions down or telling me that I was dangerous or out of my lane or whatever, both the pastor, uh, who was the, you know, my boss at the time. And so many people in that congregation were just like, yeah, let's talk about that. Let's, let's work through this. Let's dialogue together. I really feel very fortunate because so many people, when they go through a faith shift or deconstruction, they lose their faith community. And, and I had the exact opposite experience of Mm. having people alongside saying like, no, you can ask that question. And actually here are three others that that question kind of sparks that you should consider. Um, which was super obnoxious at the time. Cause I was like, I can only ask like so many questions at once. Um, and I was still looking for like that one solid answer, right? Like the perfect position for my theological couch and armchair, so to speak. Uh, but instead I had the, the gift of other people kind of critiquing that alongside of me and saying like, no, you, you need to push further. Like you need to keep going. You need to keep asking questions. And, and so I feel really grateful for that. And then when I got to seminary, I really felt like there were a lot of things that then just got like put back together or put into different places, or I I was ready to hold that information and that formation that seminary offers. 
which again, I feel really grateful for. And so um, being in Dr. Cherith B. Nordling's theology classes and just realizing like, oh wait, no, there is good news underneath all this shitty news that mm -hmm. I was told. Um, there is good news underneath all of these questions that I was been, I've been asking. And the good news isn't that like, here's the like, you know, predetermined, like, okay, like, this is what God wants you to do. It, it, it's that God is with us and that Christ suffers with us and that the questions are, are just part of the process. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I see that you have a Milwaukee shirt on. You hey, do. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> you talk a lot about your experience in Milwaukee in your book. Mm -hmm. Uh, and Milwaukee is not notable for its race inequity. Can you talk a little bit about how your involvement in justice movements in Milwaukee has shaped your understanding of salvation? Yeah. So, I, I mean, I still live in Milwaukee. I love Milwaukee. Um, my shirt says Milwaukee home. Mm. Um, and so I, I think I moved to the city still very much in that, like, evangelical mindset, right? Of like, I was going to come and I was going to help Milwaukee. Mm. I was going to save Milwaukee. I was going to, you know, maybe, maybe not the whole city, but at least the block I lived on. Um, and then I got here and I knew the stats, right? Like I knew that, you know, it's all, it's consistently been in the top three or four, uh, worst cities in the country for, for racism. I think we're currently number one, which is, you know, great. That's fantastic. Um, but I, I didn't really understand the impact of, of that big of a system before. I grew up in a small town in the rural South. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, you know, there's certainly different systemic inequalities in old coal mining towns, but, um, but it was almost like boiling a frog, right? Like I, I was totally numb to all of those inequalities that I grew up around because I grew up around them. And so getting dropped into a totally different broken system. I was very aware that like, Oh, this is bigger than just me personally mm -hmm. and how I personally feel about my neighbors and how I personally interact with, uh, people with different racial or ethnic backgrounds than I do. This is bigger than just like, I don't feel like a racist. Um, or I don't hold, I don't have a racist bone in my body, so to speak. Right. Um, I can have black friends and the system can still be in place mm. and oppressing people. And so I think that it really started to shift me away from this, uh, strictly personal idea of salvation. And I talk about that in the book a lot, right. That it's like, I mean, the idea of like, I personally accept Jesus into my heart, blah, blah, blah. Right. Like it's just incomplete. Um, and really misguided because salvation does need to be more cosmic and broader and, and really have a sense of belonging and universality to it because the things and the powers and the principalities that need to be overcome are that. Um, and, and so starting to see that there was systemic inequality that had been formed over generations in my city made me really start to think, okay, then for salvation to meet that, uh, that harm, it needs to be broader too. Mm -hmm. Towards the end of the book, you list a number of practices that people can participate in that I think are, you would probably, you know, qualify or categorize as, uh, salvific. 
So can you share a little bit about what some of those practices are and which ones you maybe recommend most right now in our world? Uh, I don't want to be like too recommendy right now for people because I just want to be like, all right, get through it, people. Like, just get yourself <laughs> through. Um, and I think that, you know, it's interesting writing a book because in some ways, like, it is a product of when you were writing it too. Right. And mm -hmm. like me in 2019 was like, yeah, like have communion. And me in 2020 is like, do not show up in person with other people right now. And please don't share food. Um, but I still do. I, I, I think that the practice of uh, coming to the table is important. I think that's one of the things that makes this current moment so difficult is because mm. we we have to find different ways of sharing like virtual tables and it's just different. Um, I think that the practice of anytime we're extending toward our neighbor, whether that is, you know, right now over Zoom calls or sitting, you know, in our driveways 10 feet apart from each other mm -hmm. or whatever um that that is good and holy and that we are invited to come back yes to ourselves right this personal aspect but that's never just for the sake of ourselves um anytime that we are reaching toward another and for toward their benefit and their flourishing that we somehow are meeting christ in that moment as well um, and, and following Christ in those moments. And so, uh, you know, I think that right now it's national voter registration day when we're talking. So I think that for, uh, people who aren't registered to vote, that that's a really good practice that can be, um, a way of walking in, um, in line with the Lordship of Christ to say like, Hey, we're going to stand and, uh, and try to do some harm reduction in the political sphere. Um, you know, I, right now the salvific actions that I am taking are like I go for a walk every morning and I try mm. to remember that everything doesn't suck. So there are other people uh, out there. There are other people, and squirrels are cute, and you know, and the seasons change, and the sun rises, and all that stuff. It's very Ecclesiastes over here right now. <laughs> <laughs> was silence or worse you justified it singing glory hallelujah raise the flame oh your fear turned to hatred but you baptized it with rage torn from the pages of the good after writing a book where you focus on salvation as this renouncing of power and privilege, how has your understanding of God's power changed? Yeah, I I don't know if I've actually thought about that a whole, whole lot because, again, like so much of it was like, as I was writing it, I was reforming my own thoughts. Mm. And so I think from the time that I began wrestling through the questions that informed the book until now, I very much understand God's power as like power with um, and power for instead of power over. Mm. Um, and so I'm not really freaked out anymore about like, oh my gosh, is like God angry at me because I did this snarky thing, which is good because I'm like really snarky most of the time. Um, 
And instead I'm like, well, no, that, that snarkiness doesn't really fit because it doesn't help me preserve the humanity of myself or my neighbor, right? Like I'm making both of us smaller than we are. Um, but, uh, but it's because of the spirit's presence within me and beside me and, and that, that I become aware of those things, not because of like a, you know, God on high lightning bolt Zeus kind of imagination mm -hmm. of like, oh, I will smite you down because you did this thing. Um, so yeah, I, I'm pretty obsessed with the incarnation and this whole idea of like God with God, with God, with mm -hmm. God, with. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I think that that's, that would be the biggest shift in my understanding again, kind of over a, a long period of time, like God is with us and that is the power of God. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I'm also really curious about with, with your book, because you also really focus a lot on this, the, the culture of consumerism, can you talk a little bit about so you know you sometimes hear these like arguments of well you're a consumer like you have a you have a podcast mic and a shirt and a book and a house and everything like mm -hmm. how do you understand that differentiation between having things that uh, may or may not be needs or even things that are enjoyable and things that you want but also mm -hmm. uh, that that is different than the culture of consumerism like how do you differentiate that and think through that. Yeah, no, I think about that a lot because I'm an Enneagram one, right? And I just want everything in my life to have a consistent ethic. And I want to make sure that like I'm being as good of a person as humanly possible. Uh, yeah, I think about that a lot of like, oh, wait, but do I actually need this? Or is this just like a desire, a want? And so uh, I think that where I come down on things is like, what are our, what are the things that we have in our lives for, right? Like, is my house so that I can like have this awesome like status symbol, like look at how cool my house is and like I can look at my cool bookshelves, Mason. Like, oh, there you was, know, those are the coolest right, bookshelves, by the way. Right, you know. Nothing cooler out there than bookshelves. <laughs> I mean, I think so. Um, you know, is it that I want to live in this particular neighborhood because this is where all the best people live, right? You know, mm. or is it that like I need to have shelter because I'm a human um, and I want to have a home that when we are able to be in each other's homes can be a space of welcome for other people too, or, or uh, for more introverted people, maybe a, a space of refuge so that I can like recharge. Um, I am like 90% extroverted. So I have to like consciously remind myself that not everybody wants people in their house all the time. Um, <laughs> that uh that i have space to uh to cultivate life right whether that's through hospitality or through having space to like recharge my own batteries right and and that it's okay for it to want to be beautiful or aesthetically pleasing or whatever right that like creation is beautiful right that we god isn't utilitarian and like well it doesn't matter everything can be like a grayscale and, and square because nothing matters except for the utility um so i think i've that warms my enneagram four heart by the way <laughs> That sounds beautiful. Just glorious. Just a grayscale creation that's different oh. squares. Um, <laughs> um, so I think it's, you know, it's what are the what are the things of my life for? And are they ways that I am 
participating in in like the good creation, right? Like the goodness of creation and and the life generating force. Um, you know, I think a lot of questions that we need to ask around things like shirts and uh, clothes and you know more consumable things in a house, right? Like my house is like eighty five years old, so it's it's been around for a while. But like um, on some of the other like more consumable things, I, I think a lot of it for me comes down to like, is this going to last? And is this contributing to like pollution and like the destruction of the earth mm. and how do I consume lightly um so as not to tax the planet more is mm-hmm. is where I kind of land on that kind of stuff now is like not so much like oh do I have too much stuff or should I be shopping less or whatever and I talk in the book about like giving up buying clothes in high school for a while um but you know now it's more like oh okay every garment that I buy and then decide that I don't like anymore because it's not in fashion anymore and then discard like goes somewhere and has an impact on on the earth that we are supposed to protect and care for and that we've done a really shitty job of doing Mm -hmm. those things so um yeah I think I just am becoming more aware of like all of the things that I think are just like things that I'm interrelated with them and the nothing ever is just thrown away mm-hmm. um, but there's a, a connection there at some point um yeah you sound like a theological Marie Kondo yeah maybe <laughs> and I I never watched the show to be to be honest I know that it's supposed to be does it spark joy I got yeah I think it's a good ethic I'm I'm here for it not too bad For many of us who have been harmed by the language of like personal Lord and Savior, how can Christians still understand in the ways that you're suggesting in the book of of Jesus being a a just and liberating Savior? How can people think of Jesus in that way and also still have this sense of a personal relationship with Jesus? So I think this is the way I like to think about the cross now. Right. That, you know, growing up evangelical, like the cross is everything. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, you know, in some ways it's weird because we don't observe Good Friday, but the cross is everything. Anyway, uh, that's a whole other conversation. But this to me is the power of the cross now. Right. Not so much that it's this like symbol of like victory and triumph, but that it's the symbol that there is no pain, no trauma, no nightmare that Christ has separated himself from Mm -hmm. that whatever like hellscape we find ourselves in Christ is like, yeah, okay. And I'm still God with God with God Mm. with God with. And, uh, so for me, that's been super key for me of being like, okay, there are horrible things that have been said and done in the name of Jesus that have nothing to do with a Jesus who bleeds and dies and suffers with and is rejected and is despised and, you know, has gone to all of those places ahead of me, right? Isn't just God with, but like, is God like waiting and like holding the table and like, all right, like I already ordered the bread basket and the like free chips and salsa, like, you know, sit down and rest, (laughs) like we're going to get out of here. And so um, maybe that's a weird visual, but that's, that's kind of where I land is like, wherever I feel the most pain and the most abandoned, 
that Christ is there with me. Um, and not just with me, but with all who suffer, um, both in the particularities of our suffering and in this cosmic sense of suffering. Come home, come home, oh, you're bitter, you taught me better than this, come Today I have Dan Dietrich. Uh, is it Dietrich? Is it sort of like Dietrich Bonhoeffer? That's how you say it. Yep. Perfect. Perfect. <laughs> I knew my German uh, roots would uh, serve me well sometimes. So, uh, with that said, uh, Dan, you do lots of things in the world. Um, I know at one point maybe you still are like a worship pastor, but you also make your own music. Really incredible music, by the way. Uh, but tell me a little bit. I mean. You, I don't know how much your music uh, was out there or anything before, but a few months ago now, uh, you had a song come out and it sort of exploded, in, in, at least within the circles that we run in. Uh, can you t- talk a little bit about Him for the 81% uh, and what inspired that and kind of like what happened uh, with it that you, maybe you didn't intend on uh, it happening? <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, so up until this last song I released um you know I'd put a song into the world and a few hundred people would listen to it and mm-hmm. we'd all enjoy that and have you know go about our our days um and so when I released him for the 81% I thought that would probably be the same experience right. um but it definitely it struck a chord with a lot of people um and kind of blew up which was a really wild experience mm-hmm. um but I wrote the song um, you know, after the 2016 election, I was just really confused and angry mm-hmm. and disappointed uh, that 81% of white evangelical voters voted for a man that I think looks nothing like Jesus. Right. And his policies, his actions um, look the opposite of Jesus to me. And so I was confused, frustrated, and uh, put all that into a song. And it's sort of a lament. It's it's sort of all mm-hmm. uh, in the prophetic um, vein of calling out, you know, those those in power and in influence, and calling them back to the way of God. Um, and so it it resonated with a lot of people, and it also pissed off a lot of people. <laughs> I would imagine. Uh, so it got picked up by um, like Huffington Post and a few other places, mm. and then it hit. Fox News's homepage. No way. I did not yeah. know about this. <laughs> yeah. And it just got wild. It was like, um, you know, death threats and arson threats against the church and just a deluge of like internet trolls and wild stuff. Wow. So. <laughs> I would imagine most of your other music has not uh, created that kind of reaction. No. <laughs> Yeah, most of my other music is just like sad indie rock, and then <laughs> then there's this song. Wow, so. typically the you know anytime Fox News wants to criticize a, a musician, it's usually Kendrick Lamar or like Beyonce. <laughs> so like you're kind of in the same same guild now. How does that feel? <laughs> Feels great. Good company. <laughs> That's awesome. 
So uh, talk a little bit about, I, I know, you know, all of that kind of blew up. And then, and I, I think I heard you talk a little bit about this story with, with uh, him for 81%. But, you know, all of that got picked up. There was all this news and everything around it. And then somehow, some way, shape or form, you got connected with Doug and started even like touring uh, with Vote Common Good, basically doing the kind of work that you were hoping, uh, you know, maybe this song could inspire. And you ended yeah. up being the person that was doing some of this work. So can you talk a little bit about what happened uh, with all of that? Yeah. Oh, it was really great. Um, you know, so I wrote this song and released it. And part of it was feeling a sense of helplessness. Like, I see all this hurt and brokenness in the world. I don't know what to do about it. I didn't know a lot of other people doing anything about it, especially in the evangelical world. Mm -hmm. um, everyone's kind of afraid to get political. Um, and so Doug Padgett heard this song and he reached out and said, hey, we're doing this bus tour across the country. We think your song would be great. Would you come and join our, join our crew? And uh, so I hit the road with them as much as I could before the pandemic shut mm -hmm. everything down. And then uh, since August, we've been back on the road uh, pretty much full time touring swing states trying to convince voters mm -hmm. of faith to vote for a change on election day. So, wow, that is so cool. So, you know, with all of that, you know, I mean, there, there probably is a certain level of like notoriety that you're receiving. You know, obviously a lot of people are listening to the song. A lot of people are inspired by this song. Obviously there is the, the negative reaction, but there's a lot of people who maybe have been feeling this for a really long time, but there wasn't a, a musical way out for them. Uh, and you sort of were able to uh, sing the lament that they felt in their soul, right? Um, can you talk a little bit about maybe what you've got in the works? I know you're not, you know, you're not probably able to tour a ton right now. I know that you have been able to do some of the stuff with Vote Coming Good, but even just for yourself, uh, doing music tours and everything, you're probably not able to do much of that. Um, but with all of that, I mean, maybe there's new music on the horizon. What, what, what do you have in the works? Yeah. Yeah. So we, with Vote Common Good, we've been doing these outdoor socially distanced rallies. And it's been great just to be able to play a little bit of music in front of actual humans again, instead mm -hmm. of like the, the online, like, um, you know, e-concerts or whatever. Right. Um, but yeah, I've been writing a lot. Uh, I've released another single a couple months back surprisingly no one heard it you know it, it didn't cause any controversy um but it's just sort of a loud lament um that i felt like uh, was appropriate for the times just naming naming the hurt of the moment and mm -hmm. crying out to god like you read in a lot of the psalms and mm -hmm. from the words of jesus um and so put out that song and i've got a few more songs in the works that are uh kind of in a similar vein um that i think would fit well with your audience sort of deconstructing mm -hmm. harmful beliefs um and kind of putting the pieces back together as well so that's super cool yeah recording right now uh, well from my home studio here and working with musicians you know around the country via the internet and it's it's in the works that's awesome i love it Oh, well, thank you so much for sharing your music. I, I, you know, as you probably are very well aware, like your song uh, has really struck a chord uh, for a lot of people, um, feeling a lot of the same sort of lament uh, for our country. And so thank you so much for sharing your own story 
in that song um, because, I, again, I think it really struck the chord for a lot of us because a lot of us have similar stories. And so just thank you yeah. for writing that, and I'm really excited to see what comes up in the future. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for having me. We were talking about this a little bit before we started recording, but the, t- the title of your book is obviously a play on words of the really popular evangelical phrase of being born again, which it's also a biblical phrase, I guess you could say, not just an evangelical <laughs> one. But, uh, At least in one part of the Bible. Yeah, that's it's true. It's there once. <laughs> it's true. But in the title, you're suggesting that maybe salvation is not this one-time event, but is something that is happening perpetually over and over again. Can you talk a little bit about this sort of perpetual salvation that is never ending? Yeah. So I was like a super churched kid. And so whenever there was this like question posed of like, if you can't say like the day and the moment that you got Mm -hmm. saved, then it's probably not real. And I was like, oh shit, I can't remember a time when Mm -hmm. I like didn't have this like sense of some sort of relationship to Christ, even though it was kind of messed up as a child. Um, and so that was like, a, you know, a huge, like, Oh no, this is terrible. I don't like the, the one time thing. And then there was also this pressure, right. To like, want to have this like massive turnaround story of like, this was the moment my whole life changed. And, and that's just not the way humans work. Right. Uh, like, you know, I, I worked uh, for a while before I was a pastor and a chaplain and all that. I worked as a personal trainer for a little while. My undergrad is in sports medicine. Um, and so like any sort of idea of like if people want to start exercising or if people want to start, you know, fill in the blank with whatever healthy habit. It's not like, OK, here's your defining moment. You're going to change your whole life after this day. Everybody tries to do that on like uh, New Year's every year, right? right? Yeah. Like everybody makes their resolutions and they're like, okay, this year I'm going to run a marathon and people will run for like three weeks and then they stop. Um, and so we've kind of done that with how we think through salvation too, right? Of like at this moment, your whole life changes and you should nail it from here mm-hmm. on out. That's just not how human beings function. And so I just think like, let's let our theology be informed by psychology and like what we know about how humans navigate the world. Um, and maybe we'll have more success because like, my gosh, like I, I hope that 10 years from now I look back at this book and I'm like, Oh man, like here are the things that I would like to say differently or different ways. I understand that. And I'm like wholly disinterested in a faith that says like, at this moment you arrive and you know everything like how boring Mm -hmm. um and how limiting and so i would much rather think of salvation as a thing that we are becoming and learning more about and discovering new ways to uh you know the language i use in the book is like returning 
um, like unlearning and returning. And I think that the minute we decide that we have nothing left that we need to unlearn and, and that we are fully living into ourselves, uh, we're probably pretty out of touch with where we're at. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It may be very obvious at this point in our conversation, but how is Born Again and Again an inspiring and liberating theological work? Um, well, it has a really cool cover, and so it makes it you very does. happy when you just look it at it. Like but... <laughs> it feels like very 50s comic book or something, doesn't it? Yes. Yes. It, like 50s comic book, or it made me think of like the grocery store when I was a little kid, too. Like mm. that was the other thing that came to mind was like the font on the like produce yeah. sales signs. Anyway, um, I like the grocery store a lot, so it's a happy memory. Um, so, yes, it is my two goals for the book, right? Like people tell you when you write a book that you should have like goals in mind and like intended audiences and things like that. And that felt very like audacious to me to be like trying to project those things out. But my, my goals were, I wanted people to feel like they were not alone. Um, and that they weren't like, like totally misguided or off base for asking the questions that they're asking. Um, and, and I've heard that some people are having that reaction. So that's good. And so I think that like often when we're trying to think through like inspiration, uh, like what's going to inspire us, we're looking for like the stories that like are one in a million, right? Like Mm -hmm. we're looking for like the superhero stories, but like I'm so often inspired by people that just make me feel like, oh my gosh, I'm not, I'm not the only one. Mm. Like, oh, you're, you're here too. Again, that power of with, Mm-hmm. whether it's God with us or humanity, like with one another, um, to be inspired by someone else who's just showing up in the midst of all of it too. And, and having the courage to continue to ask questions and having the courage to say where they got it wrong and having the courage to try to like have hope and to dream of something new, because mm-hmm. those are courageous acts. Um, and so that's, you know, I think that's kind of the, the sneaky inspiration of the book is to say like, Hey, yeah, me too. Mm. Um, aside from the cool cover and I'm actually very funny, um, despite like also writing about theology and history and things like that, that tend to be (laughs) kind of boring sometimes. Um, it's, I, I I think it's, you know, it's kind of, it's, it's cheeky. Totally. Um, and and that's fun for people too. (laughs) Last question. How can listeners get connected to you and your work? Yeah. So I am on Twitter and Instagram at mwestra, M-K-E. Right now there's very little theology happening in either of those places because my brain is tired. And so it's mostly, um, well, right now there's lots of tweets about how much I hate fall because it just means that winter's coming. Mm. Um, but people can follow along. And um, then I'm on Facebook at Megan Westra and my website is meganwestra.com. And there's all sorts of information about how people can get the book on there. And um, my very occasional and sporadic blogging is also on there. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for sharing a little bit more about your book. I really enjoyed reading through it. And uh, yeah, thank you again for sharing a little bit more about it. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I was alone, but never afraid. If you would like to connect with Megan and Daniel and their work, you can find links in the episode description. Thank you again for listening to another episode of A People's Theology. If you liked what you heard, please give the podcast a five-star rating and review. 
Also, please support the podcast at my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Mason Meniga. And remember, friends, go and be the theology to the world that inspires and liberates. <laughs>